Welcome to Arendelle Alliance Church. We are pleased that you can join us today, and we trust God will bless you wherever, wherever and whenever you are watching. My name is Bert McBride, one of the elders of the Church, and I'm happy to welcome you, whether you are a regular attender or if you're just looking in on us as part of your COVID-19 worship time. Just a reminder that today is our monthly communion service, and Pastor Joran Green will be leading us in the Lord's Supper after this service. If you wish to participate, please be prepared with bread and juice. A couple of announcements. Mrs. Petty is having summer fun days for your children at the church on Mondays from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., I invite you to review the details in the e-bulletin or on our website, and the instructions on how to register for those events are there. Reminder that we would like to speak to you if you are interested in becoming a member of Arendelle Alliance Church. We welcome you to call the office and arrange to speak to Pastor Joran, who would love to answer any questions you have prior to deciding on membership. So join us now as we watch a short missions video from Heather Hahn de Cabezas. God is great. Paul was talking over 2,000 years ago to a group of people who really wanted to know God and they believed in many other things, but they didn't know Jesus until someone like Paul came and told them who Jesus was. This is great news. God loves us so much that he sends Jesus to earth so that we can know him. My name is Heather Hahn and I am an IW in Mexico City with my husband Andres and our kids Lucas and Teodoro. We have the privilege of telling people about Jesus, those who have never heard of him before, like a group of Wichol people who live in the mountains and don't have a lot of access to hearing about God. Let me tell you a story about a young woman. Her name's Yolanda. Just over a year ago, Jolanda was finishing her studying to become a dentist when she heard that our ministry was going up into the mountains to help people with doctors and dentists and all kinds of care. She wanted to come along and help using her newly found skills as a dentist. When she was working there, she saw a woman come. She waved her into her seat, but the woman seemed very sad. Jolanda thought, maybe God would use me to tell this woman about God. She felt her heart starting to pound quickly, but she sensed this was the moment. So she told this woman who looked so sad, Do you know that God loves you? He loves you so much that he sent Jesus to take care of all of our pain and problems. And this woman, Yolanda, began to pray for this woman. The woman was so taken back that she began to smile to hear a story that God loved her. This is kind of like a two-part miracle. Because God began to heal her mouth and her face at the same time that he began to heal her heart as it filled up with his love for her. I want to thank you guys because as you give and as you pray, people like Jolanda can go and tell other people who have never heard about Jesus that he loves them very much. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus. Thank you that you love us so much that we get to know you and have a relationship with you. We pray for people like Jolanda as a dentist that she would be able to tell many people about you. And we pray for the woman who came to visit her that she would know more and more about Jesus. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Welcome back. And I now invite you to join me in prayer, please. Please feel free to pause the video at any time if you would like to spend personal time praying. From Psalm 62, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. 
pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Lord, in this time of turmoil, we so easily forget your greatness. You are not surprised or confounded by the events of 2020. You know all, you see all, you are all-powerful. Nothing is out of control for you. We pray for our government leaders, that somehow they will be aware of your sovereignty. We pray for a strong awareness of sin and the part sin plays in the terror of these days. Help us to remember that you love us. You sent your Son to us at the cost of his life, that we might be free from sin. As believers, we want that our lives will please you, and our lives will be a testimony to those around us. Help us to be gracious to others in these stressful days. We pray that you will watch over us. Help us to do what is right for the health of others as well as ourselves. Give wisdom to the members of the COVID team who are guiding us through the stages of returning to regular worship. We pray for students and parents as the fall school term nears. Pray for wisdom, for peace, for safety for all those who are attending. And I pray that parents will be able to put their trust in you in these days. Today we bring before you three of our Sister Alliance churches in this district. These are Looseland, Martinsville, and Meadow Lake. Guide them as they go through the stages of returning to regular worship times. We pray for their pastors, that they would walk faithfully with you, that they would be filled with your spirit as they lead their congregations. We pray for Village Missions of Canada, and we thank you for the good response Village Missions Canada received in last month's Reach Canada 2020 campaign. And we pray that uh, their American counterparts will also be blessed as they're hosting their campaign on Saturday, July 25th. We pray for Marie Enns in Cambodia. We pray for health and protection for all, and they have a special request for baby Morocot's sight to be restored. Lord, we place that before you for your miraculous working. Lord, you know that several of our congregation are suffering from serious health issues. They need a special touch from you. Would you be pleased to heal them? Give wisdom to those who care for them. Give strength to their loved ones who stand with them in this time of testing. We are careful to thank you for answered prayers. Thank you that Rongwa has returned safely, and we pray you would keep her well. Thank you for our worship teams as they have adjusted to the requirements of online worship. May they know your blessing. And we thank you for Pastor Joran and his family and the grace they have shown in these unusual circumstances. We feel blessed to have Joran as our lead pastor. Help us to be gracious to him, to love and honor him as your servant for our need in these uncertain days. And as he speaks in a few minutes, we ask you to guide him, to fill him, to strengthen him. Help us to give careful attention to your message for us today. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Alright, hello, I'm Alex, and welcome to this week's Bible Scripture reading. This week we're going to be reading from the book of Amos. We're going to be reading Amos verse, uh, book 3, verses 13 to 15, uh, 4, verses 12 to 13, and then uh, book 5, verses 4 to 19. Uh, this will be from the Christian Standard Bible as well. Alright, so here is book 3, verses 13 to 15. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is the declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horn of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house, and the houses in land with ivory will be destroyed, and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Amos, book 4, verses 12 to 13. Therefore Israel... That is what I will do to you, and since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of darkness, and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. Amos, book 5, verses 4 to 9. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, or go to Gilgal, or journey, journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will certainly go into exile, and Bethel will come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will spread like fire throughout the house of Joseph. It will consume everything, with no one at Bethel to extinguish it. Those who turn justice into wormwood and throw righteousness to the ground. The one who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns darkness into dawn and darkens day into night, who summons the water of the sea and pours it out over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. He brings destruction on the strong, and it falls on the fortress." Good morning and welcome. My name is Pastor Jordan Green. I'm the lead pastor here at Arendale Alliance Church. If you've got your Bibles handy or a digital device with your Bible on it, I invite you to turn with us to Amos chapter 3. We've been doing a series in the book of Acts. For those of you who were maybe with us a couple weeks ago, we are going to return to the book of Acts. But I'd like to do a regular switch, Old Testament, New Testament. And in fact, I'm going to talk a little bit this morning toward the end about the fact that we need to be very intentional to remain grounded in the Old Testament because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob 
is the same God that Jesus comes and talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. He's the same God whom Jesus calls Father. He's the same God that Peter and Paul and the other apostles are going to preach. And he's the same God we read of, both Old and New Testament. So with this in mind, Amos chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider a really awkward question. If God were to come and confront us as Canadians for our sin, what would he confront us on? What would be the sin that God would point to, to the nation of Canada and say, this is what I would charge against you? Maybe there's a series of them. Would there be a particular sin as people of Saskatchewan? Or people of Saskatoon, or Saskatoon Church? Or as a church? These aren't happy questions, they're not easy questions, but Amos chapter 3, and we're going to actually look at Amos chapter 3, 4, and 5 this morning, all force us to be very intentional in asking, how are we doing with God? What sin have we allowed to creep in? Because we're going to discover that God takes sin very seriously. And as we saw last week in Amos chapters 1 and 2, when God comes and charges, he charges the sin against the person according to their level of knowledge. So in the case of the Philistines, for example, they're not the people of God, they don't have Torah. God does not expect them to worship right, but he expects them to show common human decency. In the case of Judah and Israel, the northern ten tribes, the separate nations, they're God's covenant people and he expects something particular from them. We, as Arendelle Alliance Church, are part of God's people. We're part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This comes with blessing, but it also comes with expectations. And with this in mind, Amos chapter 3, and as we go there, would you bow with me in prayer? Holy God, we ask that you would meet us and that you'd speak to our hearts. Reveal truth in your word wherever we are, whatever day of the week it is. Show us what you'd have us to hear. If we need conviction, bring conviction. If repentance is called for, may we be brought to it. If encouragement is needed, may it be granted to our souls. And as we study your word, holy God, we ask that you guide us, Holy Spirit, that you fill us, that we would see and hear truth and be changed, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, last week we talked about for three sins and for four, and there's this regular pattern. For three crimes and for four, we see, for example, in verse 11 of chapter 1, the charge of Edom. In chapter 2, the charge against Moab, we have this pattern. Well, now in chapter 3, God isn't speaking to the foreign nations anymore. At the end of chapter 2, he switches focus and says to Judah, the southern tribes of Israel, and then says to Israel, the northern tribes, and sometimes Israel is all of Israel, and sometimes it's specifically those 10 northern tribes. He begins to make charges. We pick it up here, and in fact, in verse 1 of chapter 3, There's actually a sense when he charges the Israelites, he's not just speaking to the northern tribes, he's speaking to all of them. Verses 1 and 2, listen to the message. The Lord has spoken against you Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. We've already had for three crimes and for four, and some translations for three sins or for four, as the other nations are challenged, as they're charged with their sin. But God now comes and says, you I have selected. He says to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt. I picked you specifically, but it came at a price. You have not been faithful to the covenant that I laid down with you. Covenant's a fascinating concept. We don't covenant together a whole lot. Sometimes people equate that with business contracts. Business contracts are not covenants. They're business arrangements. Closest covenant I can give you that we experience, those of us who are married, marriage is covenant. I was performing a marriage last weekend, and I I did restrain myself. I tend to, having been at a bridal college, Bible college for so many years, I tend to, I'm used to dealing with young couples, and I was very tempted to point out to this young couple that, With getting married, it means only one of you gets out of this relationship alive, according to covenant rules. But it didn't really seem the appropriate thing to say at their wedding, but voice and head. That sounds facetious, but it's actually a serious statement because covenants are not broken. It's not a business contract. You don't get out of it. In fact, when covenants first made, 
with Abraham, for example, an animal is killed as symbol to remind this is how serious it is. The parties are committing that only death breaks this covenant. And yet Israel has broken the covenant. Again, verse 2, I have known only you out of all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquity. And God begins to point out in these opening verses of chapter 3 that at no point can Israel say, well, we didn't know what God required of us. Because they came out of Egypt and they had all of that blessing. But even more to the point, God says through Amos, I have continually sent you the prophets. I've given you warning. Can two walk together without agreeing? Verse 4, does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey or a young lion growl from its lair unless something's been captured? Verse 6, if a ram's horn is blown in a city, aren't the people afraid? If a disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? And this series of rhetorical statements is to establish God is saying, I have been telling you all along what I'm going to do. I've been sending you prophets. It's been announced. You can't say you didn't know. And he uses these great metaphors from nature to reinforce it. There's some interesting twists with these metaphors from nature. I love the lion one, for example, that I read. Because there is this cause and effect. I declared, therefore you should know. But interestingly, with the lion, there's actually a subtle warning of where we're going to go in the next couple of chapters. And I never considered this. I'm not really a nature guy. But I never considered it. But lions do not roar when they're hunting. They roar after they have their food. Because if a lion roars before it goes hunting, then the game knows it needs to run off and it makes the lion's job harder. They're quiet before they get their prey and then they celebrate afterwards. I remember when my son was little and he had his food on his spoon and he used to sing to his food as he was eating it. That's kind of like lions. And there's a not-so-subtle shot here with that reference to lions because it's roaring that maybe judgment is coming, that Israel is going to be as good as dead. We're going to talk about this when we get to chapter 4. Verse 6 that I read also reminds us everything is under the sovereign control of God. When disaster comes, it's because God has allowed it. And it does beg a whole host of very difficult questions for us. And I regularly have conversation with people who ask, why does God do hard things? Why does he let bad things happen? How do we understand God's work? And it goes far beyond this sermon. And frankly, it goes far beyond my own human experience. But there's a a warning here in verse 6. God is sovereign and God is in control. This series of rhetorical questions in verses 3 to 8 reminds Israel, God does not surprise the Israelites with expectations they didn't see coming. He has given them fair warning. He has prepared their hearts. He's prepared them to hear and to know, and it has been their choice to reject what God has asked them to do. They are the ones who have hardened their hearts. They are the ones who have not listened. They're the ones who have invited this judgment upon them. Mercy's been offered in places. And as we move through chapter 3, there's there's moments where we get the sense that God's trying to say, I've warned you, if you would just listen and take hold of what I'm saying to you, if you would take it seriously and repent, if you do what I told you to do, bad things wouldn't happen. But they haven't done that. The call goes out here even. Fascinating. Fascinating. Verse 9, a call goes out to Samaria and Egypt to watch. We've had in in 3 to 8 this idea that the prophets are announcing what's going to happen. And Israel had their chance, didn't take it. The the invitation now in verse 9 for Egypt and Samaria, the Philistines, to watch what's about to happen really is kind of interesting given that the Philistines are one of the groups that we saw condemned. They're one of the groups in the first couple of chapters for three crimes and for four. And yet, what we find here, they're actually going to watch God's judgment fall on the house of Israel. And again, there's this reversal. Israel thinks they're doing great and God's saying, no, you're not. And the enemies that you're so proud to have defeated, and think about Egypt and coming out of Egypt and everything that goes with that. The ones you look back on with contempt will watch as you fall. It's humiliating. 
verse 12. The Lord says, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued with only the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. When I first read these words, I thought it was an image that God was going to keep a remnant for himself. And when the authors I was reading pointed out, that's not the case. To find only part of an ear or a leg, to find only a piece of seat cushion from where they were sitting, is not a remnant that has been preserved. It is the proof that they are dead. The wrath of God is coming. They've been warned. They had their opportunity. God has said, I selected you from all the nations, but they have not followed through with their covenant obligation. And the judgment God warned about is coming against them. Chapter 3 ends in what's really a sort of court of law. And we see the imagery there at the end as the horns fall off the altar, which is symbolic of this tearing down of the power of the house of Israel. And we're really left with this idea that God is coming in his wrath, in his judgment, in the court of law, because they have not done what is required. But it's covenant, it's not contract. We break a contract, we're legally liable. But with a covenant, the only thing that can pay it off is shed blood, which is a little ironic given a little later this morning, we're going to celebrate communion because Christ shed his blood because the only thing that covers sin is bloodshed. And God says in Amos chapter three, I am coming for you because you broke my covenant. Now he's saying this to Israel, but I started at the beginning asking the question, what sin would God come and confront us as individuals, as Saskatonians, Saskatchewanites, as Canadians? As human beings, what would the charge be? Well, chapter 4 continues this. Chapter 4 always gets some snickering from my students. And I've had the opportunity to teach Amos. Amos is one of my favorite books to teach. And chapter 4 is a highlight because of where it starts. And keep in mind, I'm used to working with roughly 20-year-olds. And you can always tell who's single in the room and who's got a girlfriend in the room. Because hear these words in verse 1. Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and who say to their husbands, bring us something to drink. And what we see in verses 1 to 3 is actually trophy wives. These women who have taken advantage of their position and their money, and usually my students start kind of laughing because Amos calls them cows. These trophy wives who have abused and neglected the poor. I ask, what would our sin be? Interestingly, as God comes and confronts the Israelites through Amos, it's not just not worshiping God properly, but the charge here in the first three verses is how the Israelites are treating each other. And in fact, he particularly goes after the wealthy here. And these wealthy trophy wives, as the commentators point out, is the image that is painted, but they stand in for the the entire upper crust who take advantage of their position, take advantage of their wealth, and trample and oppress those who are vulnerable, who cannot defend themselves. And God is angry. We see that image there. I'll I'll lead you out with fish hooks in verse 3. You'll be brought out through the breaches. Sorry, that was verse 2 and then verse 3. You'll be brought out through the breaches of the wall, which implies that the city has fallen and they're now being carted off. They're now being dragged away into captivity in punishment for their sin. It's a heavy text. God is angry. Verses 4 to 6. Come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilead. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tenth every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanks offering and loudly proclaim your freewill offerings. For this is what you love to do. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 6. I give you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities. A shortage of food in all your communities. Yet yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. And in the next series of verses, 
Amos is going to expand on this idea. And it starts with this mockery in verse 4. Go and do all of your normal worship practice. But clearly God has recognized what they're doing is not reflective of their heart attitude. They figure if we do the outward stuff, God will be happy. And we can do what we want to do. God sees the heart. He knows the truth. He sees how they're treating each other. Their conduct towards each other shows they do not fear his law or truly follow it. Their conduct and their their actions before him demonstrate they do not respect or honor him. And so their worship is empty, ritual, and routine. And notice what God says. You're starving. You're doing these celebrations. I don't want anything to do with it. You're starving. And yet, even in your punishment, you're not turning back to me. Are we any different today? I'm reminded as a parent, how often do we as parents, we discipline our children and they don't learn, so we discipline them again for the same thing? I had a rule as a teacher. First time I observed a mistake in a paper, I'd make a note about it and I'd write something about it, give it back to the student. If they kept making the same mistake over and over again, though, then they start losing marks. First time, okay, maybe you don't learn. So I'll give you the chance to learn. Will you take the chance? I remember as a child doing the same thing over and over. First time, don't do that. I've been warned. Second time, now the punishment comes. God has been punishing the Israelites. They have not stopped. They have not listened. They have not asked. They have not responded. They're acting like children, sinful children, and the wrath of God is against them. He goes through and he talks about how everything they have is being stripped from them. The blessing that was supposed to be theirs has been lost because they're not obeying and not walking faithfully with God. And notice verse 12. I love verse 12. When I first came across verse 12, I thought, what a nice idea. Then realize the context on it. Verse 12. Therefore, Israel, this is what I will do to you. And since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. When I first encountered these words, I thought, awesome, we're meeting God. No. You're going to die and you're going to face him. The punishment of God is coming for people who knew better and did not listen. They tried to hide behind religious piety. They tried to hide behind religious acts that didn't mean anything to them. They did all the outward stuff to try and manipulate and control God. And God knows the truth, sees their hearts, sees how they treat each other. And what does he say? I'm coming to take you away. I'm coming to destroy you. Chapter 5 Amos continues with this heavy, heavy message. And he reminds us, a thousand will go out for battle and only a hundred come back. A hundred go out, only ten will come back. They're being defeated. God's blessing has been removed. When we think back to Jericho, small military, big city, they didn't even have to raise a sword. They just had to walk around it. The walls come down. How many times did God fight on their behalf? But that blessing is gone. Verse 3, the Lord says, the city that marched out a thousand strong, only a hundred left. The one that marched out a hundred strong, only ten left. Why? Because they have not abandoned. They have not been faithful to the word of God. They have abandoned the command and covenant of God. Verse 10 They hate the one who convicts the guilty at the city gate. And they despise the one who speaks with integrity. They have twisted truth for evil. They have twisted evil and made it true. And in fact, as we're moving through this middle section of chapter 5, God declares, I'm the one who makes darkness light. I'm the one who comes and brings illumination to the universe and all of creation. And he clearly declares who he is. And in doing so points out, you have perverted my ways. You have abandoned me. And this is why he said at the end of chapter 4, prepare to meet your God. We're not surprised by the time we get to verses 14 and 15. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. It's not a surprise. The Israelites have been told this by the other prophets. Amos isn't the first one to say this. They should know better. 
But remember what we talked about already. God declares through his prophets what he's going to do. There are no surprises. No one can say we didn't know what God wanted of us. God has given us his counsel. Verse 14 again. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you. As you've claimed. Hate evil and love good. Establish justice in the city gate. Perhaps the Lord... The God of armies will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There's no promise here he's going to relent, but there's a hope here because he is a God of mercy and a God of compassion. And maybe if they actually do what they were supposed to do all along, just maybe God would spare them. Verse 27. So I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. He has spoken. Whoa, how did we just get to verse 27? Simple, because God says, here's what you need to do. And after verses 14 and 15, he walks Israel through her unfaithfulness. He walks Israel through. This is how you should live. But he warns them, his day is coming and his wrath is coming because he knows where their hearts are and they are unrepentant. He has said in 14 and 15, here's how you avoid it. But the truth of verse 27 stands because God knows what's going to happen. They are not going to repent. They're not going to bend the knee. They're not going to be the covenant people. Chosen from all the clans of the earth, they are going to reject what God has called for. And his promise here in verse 27, you're going beyond the Damascus. This is actually a warning. God is calling a shot in Amos' day, saying, Assyria's coming. And they're going to punish you for your sin. You could have had it good, but you rejected me. You've had nothing. You've been blighted with mildew. You've gone hungry. You haven't had water. Because you've not followed God. What do we do with this? I want to draw out a number of conclusions for us. Because this is God's word to Israel. But as I alluded to at the start... God hasn't changed. And sometimes we, we reinterpret God a little bit in light of Jesus. And Jesus comes and he says things like love one another. And, and he demonstrates his love for sinners. And we, we develop this idea and we talk about Jesus as our friend, which is true. But we run the risk of forgetting that he is still holy God. And the holy God has not changed. But we're seeing this new side of grace and mercy. And we've got to hold that grace and the love and the mercy with the holiness and righteousness. And incidentally, if you want a portrait of what does this look like when we forget it, go read the message to the seven churches in Revelation. Now, a couple of the churches, there's no concern raised. They're told, hang on to the end. You've been faithful. The blessing's coming. But to others, I was thinking of the church of Ephesus at this point. Jesus comes and confronts them and says, return to your first love. See how far you've fallen. It's Laodicea where there's not even anything good said. You're naked, poor, and blind. You're neither hot nor cold, so I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, he says to them. Because God has not changed. And so what do we do with this? As people bought by the blood of Jesus, how do we live this out in the 21st century? Because God has not changed. The first thing I want to suggest is this. How we treat each other matters to God. One of the significant charges in this text is, you, Israel, have mistreated your fellow Israelites. We see this in chapter 4. Your wives have oppressed and have taken advantage of the weak. And they are symbol. And as the text moves on, we find it's not just the wives that are doing it. Everybody's doing it. And we had warning of that in chapter 2 already as Amos comes and confronts Israel for three crimes and for four. How we treat each other matters. But connected to this also is how we worship God matters. Because in Amos, he's not just saying you mistreated each other. But he's also saying, you've not worshipped me properly. And we can't separate those two things. Jesus doesn't, so why should we? Pharisees come to Jesus. Good teacher, what is the greatest command, they ask. Of course, they don't actually want to know the answer. They're just trying to entrap him. He gives two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
This is the sum and total of what Amos is saying as well. So our first thing we need to take away with this, we need to be mindful and compassionate of our fellow human beings and careful of our walk with God. How we walk with God and how we walk with each other is is intimately linked. We don't separate those two. We need to do the things we know we must. And what we saw last week, some of it's just really basic human decency. If someone's in need, help them. If someone is in need of assistance, offer it. If there's things we know that God wants, then do them. If there's things we know God doesn't want done, then don't do them. Because God meets us to the limit of our knowledge. And for those of us who've walked with Jesus for a long time, we can come up with a pretty comprehensive list of all the things Paul alone lists in the New Testament of what a Christian is to say and to do and to be. But really, it isn't that difficult. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Our second thing, we are without excuse. If we walked with Jesus, if we've heard the testimony of Christ, Jesus can take the sin and deal with it. We've been warned. Now and again, when I hear children's features or we sing children's songs, I'm reminded I've probably gotten too sophisticated in my theology. I need to go back to really simple things. Just really basic kinds of things. Because God has warned us how to treat each other. And he's going to hold us accountable. We have scripture that shows us how we are to live. He's, he's given us one another to speak the truth. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. So not only point one, application one, does how I treat other and how I act in the sight of God matter. But I'm without excuse and so I need to be really serious about it because I know. And for those of us who are going, well, I'm not really sure what God wants, then we need to spend time in Scripture. Then we need to find a life mentor. For those of us who've walked with Jesus a long time, we probably need some life mentors to ask us some hard questions like, are we being consistent with what we know? Third conclusion. And this one's not a curse. This one's a blessing, but it sounds like a curse at first. How we live really does matter. God actually cares how we treat others. God actually cares how we worship him. What we say and what we do really does make a difference. Now, for some, that's a downer. For me, that's an encouragement because it means that my life matters and your life matters and our conduct matters and proper worship of God matters because he sees it and he honors it and he rewards it. And when he doesn't see it, he will step in. My life actually counts. And for me, I need, I need value. I need to know I'm going somewhere. I need to know that what I do makes a difference. I'm one of those people where if you truly want to torture me, give me a job that no one will ever know if it was done or not and it will make no difference in anyone's life whatsoever. I'm not looking for glory. I'm not looking for honor, but meaningless labor. And, and that it just kills and crushes my soul. I come to Amos's words and I see the heaviness here, the seriousness of their sin and God saying, prepare to meet your God. And on the one hand, I'm horrified and I ask myself these, these, these soul-wrenching, am I in sin questions. On the other hand, I'm also encouraged because God sees and I matter. And finally, our fourth, there is grace and mercy. God's judgment and discipline we see here in Amos reminds us there is judgment for how we live. But all through chapters 3, 4, and 5, we are brought back to this constant idea that God is actually trying very hard to not have to be forced to discipline Israel. Israel's making it impossible. When verse 27 comes of Amos chapter 5, and he says, you're going to exile beyond Damascus, God, has, he's finally on the point where he says, you have made me do this. But all through this is this constant reminder. If we stop and we seek God, if we were to listen to his word, we could find forgiveness. We could find redemption. We could find restoration. 
Don't forget verses 14 and 15. Pursue good and not evil so that you may live. And the Lord, the God of armies, will be with you as you have claimed. All through a heavy, heavy message of judgment and impending punishment is a constant reminder. God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. How we live matters. He will take sin seriously. But he is giving us a way out of his punishment. Of course, as New Testament believers, that is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. By the shed blood of Christ on the cross, I am forgiven. I am set free. But do I believe it? Do I live like it? Has it changed how I treat others? Has it changed how I view God? I don't know what the sins of Saskatoon are. I've got some speculation on some of what God might say to Canada. I'm not sure what God would say to us as a church. Might have an idea of what God would say to Saskatchewan. But what is he saying to you today? What is he saying to me today? Have we sought him? Have we been concerned for our neighbor? Are we accepting his grace and his mercy? Or are we living in rebellion and forcing God to punish and discipline us? As you consider this, keep in mind, we're going to communion here in a few moments, which is exactly what Amos is talking about. That there's grace and there's mercy and forgiveness if we will seek it from God. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for Amos and his word. These are heavy words, holy God. These are difficult words, and yet they're your words. We see how you warn, and you've said things to us. We know how you want us to treat one another. How you want to be worshipped alone. Lord, if we are in sin, would you reveal it? Holy God, would you speak to our hearts and prepare us for communion today? Lord, would you remind us that how we live matters and that you see it. And that our lives count and that we count. And Lord God, Would you cleanse us and heal us? Would we find your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness this week? Lord, for those who have not called on your name, would you make them uncomfortable with the fact there is no forgiveness except the shedding of blood? And it's either theirs or it's yours. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, cleanse us again. If repentance is needed, give us the courage to respond. And Lord, be glorified in us and through us. Transform us and change us and make us holy for the sake of your name and your kingdom. Amen. Before we go to communion, Amos is heavy. There's some heavy, heavy words here. If God is speaking to you and you need to talk to someone, the elders are available. They're listed in your bulletin. You're welcome to give me a call at the church and we can set something up. I'd love to sit and I'd love to chat and I'd love to pray. I have people who walk with me because there are seasons in my life where I know I'm in rebellion to God and I don't want to bend the knee. And for those of you who realize that Jesus did not die for your sins because you haven't haven't asked, you haven't believed, but you want to know more or God's tugging on your heart that you need to really deal with this that Jesus is real and he really did die. Please get a hold of us. Contact the church office. Information's in the bulletin. We would love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to explain to you the hope that is within us because we do not need to live in fear because Jesus loves us. He died for us so that our punishment has been paid. God bless you. Good morning and welcome to our communion portion of our service. As we prepare for it, I want to take a moment for us where we are to take and and prayerfully consider how are we doing with Jesus today. Some of Paul's words here, he says, whenever you eat the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And so with this in mind, we typically like to stop at this point in the communion service, and, and before we go any further, 
let's pause and spend a little bit of time in personal prayer and personal reflection. How are we doing with the Lord? So before we go any further, would you bow in prayer? Lord Jesus, as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would search our hearts and holy God, that you bring conviction where there is sin and bring encouragement where there is forgiveness. We seek to come before you as a holy and righteous people, not holy and righteous because of anything that we have done, but holy in your sight because your blood covers our sin and your death on the cross has cleansed us and made us right with you. In this time of communion, would you meet us? Would you speak to our hearts? And would you be glorified, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. With communion, we start on a sober note. And this idea that we need to be very careful and very serious about where are we at with Jesus Christ? Have we allowed sin to build up in our life? Have we allowed sin to build up between us and a brother or sister? Are we harboring something in our soul? We need to take those things seriously. But it's important also to remember that this is a celebration. Paul himself talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as he reminds us, this is the centerpiece. We are declaring the death and resurrection of Jesus and it's the reminder we have been cleansed. We have been forgiven. We are the people of God and when we eat the bread, when we drink the cup, we are reminding ourselves of Jesus' death on the cross, the blood that was shed for our sin, And even more than that, we're reminding ourselves the tomb was empty and our Lord is coming again to save us. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and when he given thanks, he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we are actually participating. We are celebrating in a very symbolic, very active way that our Savior and our Lord died for our sins and has set us free. And so if you're watching, joining us online this morning or this afternoon, wherever you are, whatever day of the week it is, if you have called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this communion celebration is for you. This is not Arendelle Alliance churches, this isn't mine, this is not the Christian and Missionary Alliance, this is the Lord's Supper, this is Jesus' own celebration. And as we go to it, you've prepared your elements at home, we have, uh, as people begin coming back to the church, we're actually going to be using uh, prepared, pre-prepared elements in sealed packages. These are only symbols to remind us that our Lord has risen. With this in mind, would you bow with me as we give thanks for the bread, which is the body of Jesus Christ, broken that we might live. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross. We cannot imagine what that was like. We cannot imagine how difficult it was. But Lord, thank you, because it is a celebration for us. the, The paradox that the creator, the author of life died, but he died that we might live. And so, Lord God, as we take this bread, thank you that you died for us, that we might live with you in eternity. Lord, for those who are partaking, would you meet us? Would you remind us that you are alive and we are your children? In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Jesus Christ, broken. Let us partake together. As I've already read, Paul reminds us, said in the same way after supper, Jesus took that that cup of wine that they were sharing among the disciples. This is my blood, which is for you. It's a fascinating symbol because you consider without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus' blood had to be shed. And so we partake together. The blood that makes us clean, that which is red, 
that makes us white. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for us. Thank you that you shed your blood so willingly on the cross for your honor and glory and for our forgiveness. Meet us, encourage us, bring conviction, make us holy. And Lord, as we celebrate this, we celebrate that you have said you're coming again. We claim that promise. We know you're coming again. May we be found ready. And holy God, may you be honored and glorified in us and through us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The blood of Christ shed for us. God bless you, God's people. We are forgiven, we are free. Go with God. Will love.